Man, I'm glad you guys are here this morning. Glad that we get to continue our worship together today. Hey, uh, before we jump in, I do have some uh, exciting news to share with you. Um, if you have been here for a while, thank you, Hayes, uh, you know that we have, um, our staff uh, has been doing a great job of keeping everything kind of rolling during the pandemic, but we have been dealing with some holes on our staff. We just had some different things open up, and one of those main holes was uh, our executive pastor position. And so a few of us on staff have been just trying to do uh, double duty, just try to cover all of those things. But all during this time, we have been looking for somebody to uh, fill that role. And over the past few months, uh, we have been doing an intensive search. We had a ton of resumes uh, submitted. We interviewed uh, over seven people. Uh, And actually, over the past two or three weeks, we brought two of those candidates in just to kind of be here and be amongst us. You may have met uh, these guys as they were here on our campus over the past couple weeks, but after a ton of prayer and reflection. Uh, we have actually made a, a decision and we have a candidate uh, that we want to bring forth to you. And so I'm very excited today uh, to give you the name of Dr. David Watson uh, as a candidate for our executive pastor position here at Mount Laurel. Uh, Dave uh, has a uh, MDiv from Beeson Divinity School. He's got a DMIN from there as well. Uh, he has served in multiple roles in the church. Uh, he has served as a young adult pastor, a discipleship pastor, and even as a senior pastor of a church plant uh, for a time. Uh, he's taught at a Christian school uh, in both theology uh, and in church history. Uh, and so he's got a very broad set of experience that he brings to the table, but feels specifically called uh, to the XP role uh, to come alongside and really help us with all the things that need to happen to keep our ministries running, to support our staff, uh, and really just to augment all the things that are happening all across our congregation. Uh, and so we're actually all going to give you an opportunity uh, to meet him. He's going to be here on campus next week. Uh, and so if you'd like to meet David, I'd love for you to meet him. We're actually going to have some times where you can actually have some time to interact uh, personally. Uh, we're going to do a Q&A this next Sunday in the second hour across the street in the community building. Uh, and so after this service, if you want to go over there and meet him, you'll have a chance to do that. Or if that doesn't work for you next uh, Sunday afternoon, we'll have another Q&A uh, over in the cafe at 4 p.m. So you can come to that one as well. Uh, but, and if you have any other questions, say, Adam, I can't make those. Great. If you've got any questions, we would love to answer those. But this is a, an incredibly important position for our church. Uh, you may not see the executive pastor or what he does day in and day out, but for all of us on staff and for all the ministries that happen, this is honestly uh, just a crucial role in, in kind of a, uh, supporting all the ministries and developing what we do here as a church. So I hope that you'll be praying for him. I hope you'll be praying for us through this process. Uh, please ask your questions, but in two weeks, we'll be having a vote uh, on July the 25th in both of our services here. Uh, and so please join with me in praying with him, but we're very excited to finally be able to bring a candidate to you for this position. Uh, now, though, let me go ahead and have you grab your Bibles, if you will, and let's go to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7 is where we're going to be today as we continue our sermon series called Return, or Rebuild, and Renew. Uh, and just like we have been returning, you may have been out on vacation last week. I hope you enjoyed that. And you say, hey, man, I'm, I'm back. Or maybe this is your first time with us. Or you're, this is your first time back in a while. There's a lot of us returning. We're following the Israelites as they, too, are returning from exile and are charged with the task of, of rebuilding the entire nation. Uh, finding renewal in the Lord, and we find ourselves in a similar spot. And so we've been looking at that over the course of the summer. Ezra chapter 7 is where we'll be, though, today in just a second. While you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Uh, I wonder who you would name to be uh, your favorite teacher. Could you name that person? Uh, take a second, think it through, but who is your favorite teacher? Maybe it was you know, a teacher from elementary school or high school or maybe in college. Maybe it's a, a mentor. Who is your favorite teacher? I bet most of us have an answer to that, don't we? You can say, yes, it's this person. And man, they had such an impact on my life and they truly poured into me and it was, it was amazing and, and I'm just so grateful for all that they did in my life. We would not be where we are without teachers like that. But let me ask you a second question. Could you name all of your teachers? Think about that for a second. Could you name all of your teachers? Adam, that's a lot. Okay, great. Could you name all of your math teachers? 
or your English teachers? Could you just name all of your English teachers over the time that you have been taught? I can't. I, I can't do that. I, if, you have to, if I have to name all of my teachers, that, that is just too large of a list to name. As we, we get farther and farther away, we begin to roll back and recognize that Man, I can't remember all of my teachers from, from high school or middle school or elementary school. I can't remember every single Sunday school teacher that I've ever had in my life. And yet, I am indebted to all of them. Because it's great to have those amazing teachers, the favorites, the ones you're always going to, to remember. You're never going to forget. But the reason we are who we are today is not due to simply one teacher or two. It's due to all of them. We need all of them. I, I don't remember who taught me how to write, but I can write right now, right? I can write different things, kind of. It's deteriorating. It's not great. But I can still write. I, I forget who taught me all of those things, but I'm so glad that they did. I can read. I don't remember all the people who taught me to read, but I can read right now. I am indebted to them for that. And there are so many different people who have poured into me spiritually over the years. And I can remember the names of most of those pastors and, and a lot of those teachers, but by no means all of the people who have invested and poured into me over decades and I am who I am, not due to simply one or two people, but to a whole army of teachers who've been pouring into my life over my entire life. That's how I am who I am today. It's how you are who you are. And quite frankly, it's, it's how we are who we are. To be the people of God, it takes more than just one person or two people. It takes an army of teachers who, over time, painstakingly continue to pour into us day in and day out. That's how we become a people of God. And that's what we're going to begin to see today in Ezra chapter 7. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you've walked with us on this journey. The Israelites were in captivity in Babylonia, and by the hand of the Lord, they were sent back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. And when they got there, they laid the foundation of the temple, and then they got distracted. Uh, the Lord sends prophets and wakes them up, and so then they, they set themselves again to the task, and they begin to rebuild the temple. They face opposition, but they will endure all of that. And as of last week, we saw the temple finally completed. They're thrilled that finally the temple stands again. They can do all the sacrifices. They can honor the Lord. It sits right there in the center of the land that God had given to them. But just building the temple wasn't really the point of the people coming back. God's desire wasn't simply to have his people on the land. It wasn't even for them to build this one building. God's desire from the beginning with Israel is that they would be his people that they would be people who love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That they would be the people who not only knew the Lord, but loved him and honored him and lived as he wanted them to live. That was the goal. And so as the people come back, it's not enough that they came back. It's not enough that they rebuilt the temple. The people themselves must be rebuilt. They need to learn what does it mean to truly follow after the Lord. They, they had abandoned the Lord, and that's why they were sent into exile. So now that they've returned, how do they grow? And for that, they are going to need an army of teachers. And that's what we pick up here in chapter 7. Uh, we're going to be learning today about the person, Ezra. We've been studying this book for weeks now, but up until now, we actually haven't talked about Ezra himself, but we find out who he is here in Ezra chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 1. Listen to this. It says, now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest, you got all that, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. 
For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. I'll stop right there. These first 10 verses are are kind of a, a summary of the next two chapters, where we're introduced to the person of Ezra and who he is and what he is doing. We find out a few different things right off the bat. First off, we have the mention of Artaxerxes, the Persian king. Now, this is two emperors away from where we were last week. We've been learning about Cyrus and Darius, but we had uh, Hoserus before him, and now we're also Xerxes, and now this is Artaxerxes. So we're about 60 years away from where we were last week. We have built the temple. It's been there for a while. It's been about 60 years, and now there's going to be a second wave of returnees into Israel. There's more people who are Jewish living in Babylonia, and now this whole second wave is going to come with Ezra back into Israel. Uh, But it tells us who he is. Look at verse 6. It says he is a scribe. Now, that means one thing in Babylonia. It means a different thing for the people of Israel. But here we get a clear definition. He says he was skilled in the law of God. Uh, that the law, skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. It was a scribe's job to teach the law. It was a scribe's job to fully know the word, to understand it, and then to teach it, to communicate it, to make sure it was handed down correctly. He was an educator. That's what scribes did. And so when Ezra is coming back to the people, this is his heart. This is his job. This is his task. It is to give the word of God to the people of God. That's what it means to be a scribe. Thirdling, though, uh, we find out his lineage. We read a lot of names there uh, that most of us can't pronounce, and I struggle myself. Uh, But in verses one through five, you just see this lineage. And you say, Adam, I don't want to recognize most of those names. That's probably true, but let's just start with the first and the last. If you look at verses one through five, it starts with Ezra, but it ends in verse five with Aaron. Now, that is a name that you ought to recognize. Aaron was the brother of Moses. He is the very first chief priest. He is the first one who is helping the people to worship the Lord. When God gives all the commands for the tabernacle and how they are to to live as a people, Moses is is kind of like the the, the main guy, but, but Aaron, his brother, he's going to be the one who organizes the worship. He is the chief priest. Ezra is not going to be a chief priest, but by putting this lineage here, it's a reminder that this is his desire. This is what God is doing through Ezra. He is going to be a worship leader. He's going to help the people to know the Lord and to worship him. He's coming straight in the line all the way back to Aaron himself, And so here we have a scribe who knows the word of God, who has a a heart and a lineage here to to worship the Lord and to teach the people to do this. And then also, you might have noticed twice it says here that the hand of the Lord was on him. This is important, that little phrase, and the hand of the Lord was on him. The hand of the Lord was upon them. This this shows up in both Ezra and Nehemiah. It's, It's a refrain that keeps popping up all over the place. It's a reminder that Ezra didn't just decide to go back to Israel and did some great things. We're not just reading an interesting autobiography or a biography about an interesting figure in history. No, God is orchestrating this. The same God who took them into exile, the same God who brought them back out of exile, the same God who has been protecting them, even though they don't even have walls of the city at this point, is also the same one who is moving in the heart of Ezra at this particular time, sending him back to his people that they might know him. God is moving here. He is preparing his people. And just like he he sent prophets to stir them to build the temple, he's now going to send a scribe to make sure that they know him. And so this is the hand of the Lord working in all of these things. But verse 10 is really where I want us to camp out for a second. Uh, and this is one of those verses you need to underline, but it tells us about his heart. It says, for Ezra had his heart, uh, had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. All right, so this is what he's coming to do. He, he loves the Lord. He loves his word. 
And he says, I want people to know God's word. I want people to understand him. I want them to be able to to worship him. I want to help my people know the Lord. And, And so as he comes back into Israel, that is his charge. That is his desire. This is what God is doing. He says, I'm gonna send you a teacher, somebody who can truly help begin to guide the people back into right worship so they never turn away from the Lord ever again. But that is not the task of one man. In the same way that our education didn't happen through one person, even though we may have a favorite teacher that we love, we were taught by lots of different people. And Israel is a very large place. Ezra can by no means do this all by himself. If Ezra is going to see the entire nation taught, instructed in the law of the Lord, he's going to need a ton of help. And so while he's on this journey, he's gathered some people from Babylon and and they're going back. As he's going there, he's going to make a pit stop and pick up some people along the way. Let's skip forward now to Ezra chapter 8, verse 15. Ezra chapter 8, verse 15. Just one chapter over. Ezra chapter 8, verse 15. He's now, he's still on the journey to get to Jerusalem and listen to what it says. He says, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, uh, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyerib and Elnathan, who were men of insight. And I sent them to Iddo, the leading man at the place Casaphia, telling them what to say to Iddo and his brothers and temple servants at the place Casaphia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion. Of the sons of Mali, the sons of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also Hashabiah, with him Jeshiah and the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20. Besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. What Ezra finds is, as he's talking with all of the people who are coming from Babylon, he's got people from all the tribes of Israel except the tribe of Levi. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to us, but it meant a whole lot to him. You see, out of all the 12 tribes, the Levites were unique. They had no land. They weren't given land in Israel to call their own. Instead, they were given the temple. They were given the right to serve in the temple and to to help people worship at the temple. It's probably why most of them had not gone back to Israel, because up till now, the temple hadn't been rebuilt. But the Levites were also the people who taught the people the word of God. They taught them how to worship. There were Levites in all the towns all around Israel, and it was their job to help the people worship, to know how to worship, to know what to do. If you don't have Levites everywhere, how is everybody going to know the word of God? And so what what Ezra is doing here is he says, we need Levites. We need lots of them. I can't do this by myself. I, I can't be the only one teaching. We've got to rebuild this whole system. We need a ton of Levites because without them, this whole revival is going to be short lived at best. This is where it's important for us, I think, to really kind of get our heads around where we are. Like, like, try to put yourself in the shoes of the people during this time. You've got Jerusalem, and now you have a temple, but let's say you live 20 miles from the temple. Remember, you don't have a car, and so you're not just going to get in your car and hop over there every other day. You're not going there weekly. But you're living your life, you're doing your thing, and periodically you're just going to have questions, questions about the Bible, questions about God, questions about what you should do. Who are you going to ask about that? Who do you go to to get that information? Because there is no internet. You can't Google that. There's no TV. There's no radio. There's no podcasts. There aren't people with just stacks of books where you can just go over to your neighbor's house and get that information. Most people didn't have any books at all. If there were any books in the town, a lot of the people weren't even literate. How in the world are you going to get answers to your questions? Well, there should be a Levite in the town, somebody that you can go to to ask these questions. But what if you don't have a Levite and you still got questions? What do you do? Well, you do your best. Uh, 
you figure it out. You do your best to honor the Lord. You, you try to figure out best you can, and, and you just do whatever you can. But I, if that were me, I, I bet I wouldn't get that right all the time. I, I bet I'd forget certain things. I, I bet I would, I would remember a few very important things that I really uh, appreciated, and then I would probably forget other things that I didn't see the importance of correctly. I, I bet I'd compromise. I bet I'd drift if we were just left to our own devices. Read the book of Judges. You can see what happens when nobody is following the will of the Lord. And so these Levites were necessary. They were helpful. And you can actually see what they do. I'm gonna show you this up on the screen. This is the end of Nehemiah. Uh, this is a little bit later on. We're fast-forwarding just a little bit, but the walls will get rebuilt, and they're going to have this massive worship service at the end, and Ezra is going to read them the law, but, but look at what happens. It says, and Ezra opened the book, that's the law, in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shebatiah, Hadiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That's what Levites do. They help people understand the word. They didn't just read it. They weren't there just kind of parroting what Ezra said. They weren't there just to kind of be random uh, people. They didn't just say, hey, here's this. Hope you understand Leviticus. And just kind of threw it out there at people. They said, no, I want to help you understand it. I'm going to read you the word and then I'm going to help you understand it. I'm going to give you the sense. I'm going to give you the meaning. I'm going to translate this into your context so you can understand it. That was the role of a Levite. And if the people were going to become the people of God, if they were going to truly become the people who, who love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, it was going to require the efforts of people like Ezra and all of these people whose names we can barely pronounce, but he puts them here by name. He says, listen, we need an army of teachers to teach the people day in and day out, year in and year out. And if we do this, this is what will over time rebuild the people of God. Not just the infrastructure, but the spirit of the people as they learn to know the Lord through his word. But that takes time. It takes a lot of hard work. It takes perseverance. And honestly, you don't get a whole lot of notoriety for that. But without it, Everything falls apart. Let me tell you about a different name that you probably also don't recognize. Uh, most of us here probably would recognize the name of Martin Luther. Uh, we are all Protestants here in this room. If you come to worship here at a Protestant church, and that is because of the Protestant Reformation sparked by one Martin Luther, nailer of the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door that touched off a firestorm in Europe and really the entire world. Luther had come back to the gospel. He had come back to the word itself. He says, listen, salvation is by grace, not by works. And this transformed him and everyone around him. It was incredible. We're 500 years later and we can still all talk about Martin Luther. But a name you might not recognize would be the name of his best friend, Philip Melanchthon. Philip Melanchthon was Luther's right-hand man. They went everywhere together. They were fast friends. Uh, Melanchthon was another professor there at the college where Luther taught. Uh, and he was a powerhouse in his own right. Uh, Luther was popular, as you can imagine, but Melanchthon was too. His classes would sometimes swell to over 500 as people would pack in to hear his lectures. He was incredibly brilliant. He wrote all these incredible different things, uh, and he and Luther just became fast friends. Uh, in the college town where they lived, they actually had a little secret passage in between their two houses that they could, so they could go and see one another uh, and hang out. 
They loved one another. They hung out uh, together. When they went traveling, it would be Melanchthon who would be defending Luther from all of his attacks. And when Melanchthon himself would be attacked, it was Luther who would come to Melanchthon's defense. And they were just kind of a a pair, a tag team. Uh, When Luther died, it would be Melanchthon who preaches the funeral. And when Melanchthon died, they laid him right next to Martin Luther. But as close as they were, these people were very different. Uh, Luther was fiery. He was impassioned. He was inspiring. He was body even at times. He was this gargantuan, larger-than-life personality. Melanchthon, not so much. Uh, people sometimes described him as timid. Uh, he was prone to stutter at, at different points. He was more thoughtful and reasoned. He was a peacemaker at heart. And so he was kind of the foil to, uh, foil to Luther, and together they did a lot of incredible things. But it was Melanchthon who really took all of the fire of Luther and put it in a form that everybody could understand. His major work was called uh, Loki Communist, not that Loki. Uh, it, it, it means main concepts. Uh, and this book was the first systematic theology of the Reformation. It was the first time anybody had taken all the theology that Luther and all these other guys had been working on, and he put it in a systematic format that everybody could understand. It transformed everything. It would be used as a textbook in Germany for over a century. And then after that, Luther, I mean, or Melanchthon rather, took it on himself to say, okay, how are we going to teach the people of the countryside? You see, Luther had done this great thing. He had translated the Bible into German. Up until that point, all they had was the Bible in Latin. Nobody could read it or understand it unless they knew Latin. The common people couldn't understand it. So uh, Luther translated it into German. And so now all these people in the countryside, they had a Bible that they could read in their own language. But the second question happens, okay, well, what do I do with it? How do I understand it? It would be Melanchthon who would travel the countryside listening to all these pastors, talking to all these new Lutheran churches and saying, okay, how do we help you? How do we help you do this? And he would systematically write out lessons and studies on how to help them. He reorganized the entire educational system of Germany. For the next three centuries, there would not be a student in Germany who was uninfluenced by Philip Melanchthon and what he did in the educational system. And so please understand, Luther was really kind of the, the spark. He was the, the lodestar that everybody kind of, kind of gathered around. But, but it was Melanchthon who really made sure that this Reformation took root. That it wasn't just built on personality. It wasn't just a, a flash in the pan. But instead, it took root over time. It was Philip Melanchthon who really helped accomplish that. You see, when God wants to rebuild a people, he does not simply send Luthers, he also sends Melanchthons. He doesn't simply send Haggai's, he sends Ezra's. He doesn't simply send prophets, he sends teachers and scribes, and you need all of them. You can't just have the one person. You can't just have the one personality. You've got to have all the people over time who are teaching consistently, faithfully. That's how you change a people. That's how you change a nation. And if we are going to become the people of God, just like what the Lord is doing here in his people, in his time, as we continue to grow, we are going to need the help not just of one person or two people. We're going to need the help of an army of teachers to help teach us and also the generations that are following after us. And so I want to look at three different things that that really kind of typify that. And I want to go back to uh, Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. Because I think this comes back to the heart uh, of Ezra. I think that's going to help us as we seek to do the same. Uh, Three different things that we need to do the same way that Ezra did. Then the first one is this. Uh, We need to set our heart to study the law. It says, for Ezra has set his heart to study the law of God, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in in Israel. We need to set set our hearts to study after the word. If you and I are to follow after the Lord, if we want to learn about the Lord, we're going to learn through his word. We also have the privilege of being able to hold a copy of God's word in our hands, in our own very language. 
But learning about God is not something simply for children. It's for all of us. Kids, you may graduate at different points in your life, but we never stop learning about the Lord. It doesn't matter how old we get. We ought always to be learning about the Lord. In fact, look at this. Here's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. Uh, Paul is speaking to Christians, and he says this. He says, but that's not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. I mean, we could spend hours just on verses 22 through 24, but how do you do all of that? Well, what I need to be taught. I have to learn. That kind of stuff doesn't just happen when you become a Christian. You don't just become a Christian and instantly have all of the Bible memorized or even understand it. We have to learn it. Look at this next one. Here's in Colossians. Paul's going to say something uh, similar. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. He goes, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. If we're going to continue walking in this grace that God has given us, we're saved by grace, not by our works. God has just given us this incredible gift in him. But if we want to be rooted, if we want to be built up, if we want to grow in our salvation, that's going to require teaching. It's going to require us to learn, to work through things, to figure things out. And that is a lifelong process. I've been so encouraged by, by some of the older folks in our congregation who are continually learning. I bet Mr. Cecil's watching right now, and I hope he is, along with some of you guys online. He's in his 90s, and I love when Mr. Cecil tells me about the books he's reading, and he tells me about what he's learning, about what he is studying. I pray that when I'm in my 90s, that I am still learning, that, that I'm studying and saying, God, what, what more do you have to show to me? There's so much more of the Lord to understand, to experience, to enjoy. How are we going to get there? Well, we need to be taught. And look, I can't get to teaching other people if I haven't been taught myself. I can't give what I ain't got. I can't teach you something I don't already know. And so before we can ever become teachers, we need to be taught. We have got to be people who study the word. But look, that takes time. You gotta wrestle. Learning's hard, Think about how hard it was to learn math for the first time. Or algebra, remember when you quit that? Or calculus, remember all that? Said so this is hard, and you had to study and work. Maybe you learned a new language, and you said, this doesn't make any sense. How do I do this? It's hard. You've got to wrestle with it. You've got you to try. It takes a long period of time, but if you continue to wrestle, you grow. You gain new insights. You gain new abilities. Okay, this is what the Lord's trying to build into us. Are we willing to set our hearts to study the, study the word, to know him? I can't help other people do that unless I'm doing that myself. And look, this is necessary because if not, we get stunted in our growth. Look at this in Hebrews. Uh, the writer of Hebrews is talking, he's, towards the end, he says, listen, about this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He says, look, I, I thought you guys would be teachers by now, but, but instead, you, you haven't grown. You haven't learned. You haven't studied. And, and I got to go over the same stuff with you again. I, I got to come back and teach you these things again. We get stunted in our growth. We don't set our hearts to study the word. But here's the good news. Listen, you don't have to do this by yourself. The Holy Spirit helps us. He's not just handing you a book and says, good luck, and just hopes you figure it out. He says, no, I've put my spirit in you. I will help you understand this. I will guide you into all truth. I will teach you things through the very Holy Spirit. But you gotta put in the time to know the word, to, to let him teach you and train you and help you understand things. 
And so this is why we study the word a lot. It's why the first thing I'm going to tell you when we start is going to say, hey, grab your Bibles and open them. Because we want to study the word. It's why we're going to offer you Double Oak University classes this fall, which, P.S., those are coming back this fall. We've got a lot of classes that help you grow in your faith. It's why in our community groups, we're going to open up the scriptures to look and really wrestle with these things in real time. What does this mean in our real life context? It's why we have men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies and different groups for you to be a part of. We have opportunities for you to study the word. Have we set our heart not just to rest on what we already know, but to continue to learn. And look, I've heard some people say, Adam, listen, that sounds great. No, it sounds like you just like school and you like to read a lot. That's just not me. I, I'm just, I'm not a book guy. I'm not a school guy. I don't like to read. I'm just, that, that, that's not my deal. Um, which, P.S., I don't believe anybody who says they don't like to read. Uh, we're the most readingest generation there's ever been. We are on our phones reading 24-7, all right? We text 24-7. No one can spell anymore, but, but we can read, okay? We're reading all the time. Look, we can read. It's just, what, what am I reading? But look, if you find yourself in this spot, you say, Adam, I just don't like it. I don't understand it. It's very hard for me. I understand. Pray for it. I dare you to pray this prayer. I dare you to pray, God, would you give me a heart, a passion for your word? God, I I don't want to read the Bible. Would you help me to want to want to read the Bible? Pray that prayer. I dare you. I triple dog dare you. Just pray it. Ask God to give you that desire. I have prayed prayers like this before, and he has done so. Say, 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 God, help me. I I want a desire for the word. I want a desire to to study and to to know you more. You you don't have to be a scholar, but but ask the Lord to give you a heart that craves his word and see what he will not do in your life. Man, if we are a people who hunger after the word, who crave the word, who study the word, we will become the kind of people that God wants us to be. But it starts with our own individual study. Secondly, we have to obey the word. In verse 10, it says that Ezra set his heart to study the law of God and to do it. He didn't just want to know the word. He wanted to live out the word. See, the goal here is not simply to be smart. It's not simply to look good on the outside. It's not simply to say that we did or to tick off a box. He says, no, I'm studying the word. Why? So that I can live it out. And look, this is not out of some desire to say, hey, oh, I got to do all these right things and then, then maybe God will like me. We know that God has forgiven us. God has given us his grace. We have salvation through the gospel. We have Jesus Christ by, by his death and sacrifice. And so Adam then why do I have to do that? Why wouldn't we do that? This is the author of life. He is the the, the true creator of everything that is righteous and wise. He loves us. He calls us to follow after him. Why would we not live in him? Why would we not do what he has to say? And so when we read the word, I don't read it just to understand or to know. I, I read so I can live in the Lord, so I can experience him, so I can walk in the life that he created us for. But I can't do that if I don't actually live it out. James talked to Christians and says something very similar in James 1. Um, Oh yeah, verse 23, check it out. Uh, Or verse 22. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, notice that, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. When James mentions the law here, he's not talking about the law of the letter. He's talking about that law of the spirit of life that we read in the passage that Hayes quoted earlier in the worship set. This is the law of the spirit of life that sets us free from the law of sin and death. But this is the law that God gives us. It's a law of liberty, the ability to be able to follow after the Lord. It's the words of Jesus Christ, the ways of Jesus Christ. We ought to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And that's necessary. Look, we're going to talk next week about all the different ways that that can go sideways in our life. But here's one of the reasons why it's important for us as a whole If we don't live out the ways of God, how will anybody else ever see him? 
If we don't live out the Christ life in our workplaces, our neighborhoods, in this area, how is anybody else going to know about the Lord? Go back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, listen, you are a a shining city on a hill. You're to be a beacon, just like Israel was supposed to be a beacon for the world. Now there's a greater beacon. It's the kingdom of God, the Christian church, all scattered throughout all the nations. We are to be that that city on a hill that shines forth, that people may see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. But how can they do that unless we are actually doing that? We cannot simply be hearers of the word. We need to be doers of the word. Is there any place in our lives where we know what God is asking us to do and we're just not doing it? We know what God's calling us to do and we just purposely aren't doing it? I can't go and teach other people if I'm not willing to follow after the word myself, follow after the Lord myself. So I have to hear the word, study the word, but then also I need to do the word. And then thirdly, we need to teach the word. We need to teach the word. You see, this isn't all just about you or me as individuals. God was rebuilding his people in Israel. His desire is not simply for us as individual people, but he says, no, my desire is for you as the church and specifically for us as Double Oak Community Church, even more specifically, the people of this campus, the people in this room, the brothers and sisters that the Lord has brought at this time to be at this place. He says, I am building you. I need you to teach one another. I need you to make sure that in this place, the word is central, that the Lord is lifted up, that his gospel is preached, not just for a few minutes in a sermon on Sunday morning, but but in all the different things that we do as a congregation. And if you're here, I I think you'll see that. You're going to see that when we teach scripture to our preschoolers. Did you know that? I have a preschooler. I hear every week about all the different things that my preschooler is learning. She doesn't catch all of it. She catches a lot of it, right? I get to hear about the scriptural things that our, our preschoolers are learning in our children's ministry. If your kids are a part of my children's ministry, they're going to learn the books of the Bible. They're going to learn Bible skills, we're going to help them know the word and what that means and, and how it can apply in their life. In our youth program with Noel, we're, we're learning about the word. We're taking them through scripture so that they understand who the Lord is through his word. You're going to hear that here in the pulpit on Sunday mornings. You'll hear it in community groups. You're going to hear it all over the place. Why do we do this across every aspect of our ministries? Is because that's how you teach the coming generations. That's how you grow a people. When we say this needs to be taught systematically by an army of teachers over time. And this has always been the case. Let me show you one more passage here. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. Paul is talking to his young protege, Timothy. And he talks very personally to Timothy. He knows Timothy incredibly well. But look at what he says, verse 14. He says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Go back to the first slide, if you would, for a second. Look what he says here. He says, continue in what you have learned. He was challenged to be a constant learner, to constantly be be teaching himself. But he says, knowing from whom you learned it. If you read the other Timothy letters, you'll find out that he was taught by both his mother and his grandmother. His father was a Greek. We don't know if he was a believer or not, but we know his mother was. We know his grandmother was. And we know that they taught him the word even from a young age. Even from childhood, he was learning about Jesus Christ. He was learning about the scriptures. They took time to pour into him and to make sure he knows that. And guess what? So he was acquainted with the sacred writings, which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Listen, reading a certain amount of the Bible doesn't save you, but when I immerse myself in the word of God that was written by the spirit of God, it's going to reveal the son of God so that I can have salvation in him. This is how we grow. This is how we become the people of God is when we are taught, but also when we teach. 
And if we're going to teach the succeeding generations, it can't just be reliant upon our pastors and ministers. Great as they are, there's only a few of them. And we've got hundreds of people that we need to teach. Hundreds upon hundreds. Just look at what happened at VBS just a few weeks ago. If we're going to systematically, over time, train and teach the coming generations, it's going to take all of us. Now, the good news is that a lot of you are already doing that. Some of you give your time to help serve in our preschool ministry, maybe once a month, twice a month. Some of you serve in our kids' ministry. Maybe you volunteered for VBS just a few weeks ago. Some of you serve or volunteer in our, our youth ministry. You say, hey, I want to I be here. I want to train students. I want to help them to know the Lord. I want them to know that they've got godly men and women they can look up to and, and trust and, and see as an example and a model in their life. Some of you are community group leaders. Some of you lead men's groups or women's groups. Listen, I'm so excited that we're all doing this, but as we move into this next phase, as we rebuild our congregation, as we begin to see what God has in store for us in this next phase of who we are, we're going to need more. It may be that in the years prior, you just said, Adam, I don't know if I can teach or not. I don't know if I, I know enough. I don't know if I'm ready for that. Do you know how much you need to know to teach people here at the church? Just a little bit more than them. That's it. That's all you got to know. I guarantee you probably know more than the preschoolers. Get in there. You can do that. You can get in there and teach those kids. Will they ask you hard questions? Probably. They'll probably just be silly a lot. Look, you can teach them. You can teach our youth. Listen, the Lord will prepare you. We will train you. We will equip you. We will help you. But we need you. We can't just leave it up to a, a, a single prophet or a few priests or, or, or scribes. We're, we're going to need an army of people to teach. We're going to need an army of people who say, no, I want to systematically, over time, pour into my brothers, my sisters, the children of this congregation as they grow up. This is how you grow a people. And look, I can't guarantee that they're going to remember your name 20 years from now. What I can guarantee is that those efforts are used by God to transform an entire people and through that entire people, he's gonna transform a city and through that city he transforms a world. You have no idea the kind of impact you can have if you'll simply say, I'm ready to teach. And so I wonder if if the Lord might be calling you to help in that process, maybe to step up in your community group, to step up in service, to step up in different ways, to say, I'd like to be ready to teach. Maybe you need to learn more so that you, and just more in your study so that you can teach. We, we need you. Still, some of you might say, Adam, listen, I, that just sounds so weird in our culture. Look, I just want everybody to kind of figure it out on their own. You know, I don't want to indoctrinate anybody. I want to let them just kind of figure it out. You know, spiritually, don't they need to find God on their, on their own path, which is... An interesting answer, it really is, because when it comes to indoctrination, you really don't have any problem at all indoctrinating them on which college football team to root for. At all. You are just slavish in indoctrinating them there, or in telling them which politician to trust or not trust, or in how to protect the family name, or how to honor your family. We'll just lean right on in, and we'll say all kinds of things. But when it comes to God, that's somehow off limits? Seriously? Hey, guys, the most important thing we can teach our children is the word of the Lord. The most important thing we can teach our children is the word of the Lord, that they might also be wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. The most important thing we can teach our brothers and our sisters is the word of the Lord. Not our opinions, the word of the Lord. So that we can be wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. We need you. The Lord has put us here as for such a time as this. What might the Lord be calling you to do as we walk into this next season to say, man, I, I don't want to be here and just get something from me. I want to be a part of God's larger unfolding story of how he is rebuilding an entire people that he might use this people to glorify his name and bring even more people to salvation in Jesus Christ that the gospel might go forth even farther. I want to be a part of what God is doing. Perhaps he's brought you here for just such a time. So do this for me. Bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. And for just a second, even before we begin to worship together, maybe you could just, 
give the Lord thanks for maybe some people he's brought to mind over the course uh, of this talk. Maybe it was a spiritual leader who, who invested in you and, and spoke the gospel to you. Maybe it was a parent, a Sunday school teacher, community group leader. It was somebody who took the time to pray for you and to pour the word into your life. That was a gift from God to you. And I bet the Lord didn't just give one. I bet he gave a lot. He's still doing it. He gives us these gifts to say, I want you to know me. I want you to grow in me. And so he gives us gifts. Teachers. Helpers. Let's thank the Lord for that. But then I wonder if the Lord might be calling you to say, maybe you've had a time where you haven't been studying. We learned a lot at a certain point in our life and we just kind of plateaued. And that's not bad, but it's not good. And I wonder if today's the day we set our heart to study the word of the Lord. To say, God, I want to know you better. Would you reveal yourself to me through your word? I'm willing to put in the time, the work, that I might know more of who you are. What if he's calling you today just to study, to learn, to enjoy him in grander measures? Or maybe today he's reminding you of that opportunity you have to pour into others. And it might be our preschoolers or our children or our youth or your coworkers or your neighbors or your friends. It might be the children in your home that God says, hey, I'm giving you an opportunity to pour the word into their lives. Let's just say yes to him as he does the supernatural renewal in the midst of us. And so Father, help us. We are grateful for the men and women that you have sent into our lives, Father, who have made us the people that we are today. Not simply... uh, competent or successful but spiritual people who follow after you we would not have gotten here without our brothers and sisters that you sent to us and so father thank you for that but as we grow father we know that we also have that opportunity to share you with others to pour your life your heart your word into others so would you show us the places we can best do that the ways, the opportunities that you uniquely gifted us for. And Lord, and even if it's different in this next season than it was in the the season prior, would you, you open up our eyes to what that looks like? That we could see an entire people centered on you. Lord, I pray a blessing on all of our ministries from from preschool to children to youth, all of our adult ministries, all across this congregation. Lord, that as your word goes forth, Your name would be lifted up and people would come to know your love, your grace, your gospel, and that they would enjoy salvation in you. Thank you, Father, for the gift of teachers. In your name we pray, amen. Let's stand up together, let's worship together. You come as the Lord leads you. Let's worship this morning.